Hey, friends over at Shepherd's Fellowship. My name is Jeff Bush, and I am the lead minister over at Mount Vernon Avenue Church of Christ here in Marion. And if you're trying to place where that is in town, think of the church, maybe you drive by, we, we do the live nativity scene there and the live Easter scene. Um, but you can also, you'll also maybe know us as the church who constantly gets our property crashed into by people driving by. Most recently, our sign got hit again uh, by somebody who just can't quite make that curve. But uh, we, MVA, Mount Vernon Avenue Church of Christ, we're thinking about just changing it to motor vehicle accident, uh, Church of Christ. But anyways, uh, hey, I have the wonderful privilege of sharing a message with you this morning that I shared this year. And it's not just any message. Uh, it is a message I shared when Tom came to visit me on a Sunday morning and be an encouragement to me just to be present as a friend. Tom has become uh, a very encouraging friend to me and it, his friendship means so much. And I just wanted to tell you before we, we play the video of the message, um, how special uh, a leadership that you guys have over there. Uh, and Tom is a pastoral heart who has a giant concern for his church and the Big C Church. And that shows up in the way that he cares for people very naturally. He invited me into his world and just become an encouragement. But I also see that in the people. Like, we can't just have a lunch here in town because everybody knows Tom. And that's great. That's so good. That's what you want uh, your leadership to be is an encouragement to you, but also to be out in the community. And Jenny and Katie are doing that as well. And that is, I just want to, what an awesome, awesome heart that's being expressed for Christ uh, through Shepherd's Fellowship. So fantastic. Just want to be a big encouragement to you to let you know that that way. But uh, especially for me, on this Sunday when I shared this, Tom came to visit and I thought about it and I thought, you know, I, I have a lot of friends in ministry that uh, bring in for something special or I'll be with them at a conference and they'll hear me speak or something and they'll say kind words and that's very encouraging. But I have never had somebody who is in ministry, who just came for no other reason than to just support me. And that's the kind of guy Tom is. And that means so much to me. And I know that you guys are encouraged by his heart. Um, so as he's off uh, kind of dealing with some matters of, of personal concern, um, I pray that that he is blessed and that God's presence is made just abundant and clear to him in these moments and that you guys uh, would encourage him with your prayers as well. And uh, just be blessed uh, by a message uh, from the Word of God this morning uh, from some other guy. Have a great day in the Lord. Take care. Hey, good morning, everybody. And a welcome, welcome to Second Service, 1045 Service here at MVA, glad you're with us here. Uh, and if you're watching online, glad that you're with us as well. Thanks for joining us here at MVA. Um, I realized when I had my coffee up here as I was getting ready here uh, that if you're watching online, it probably just looks like I'm doing a Tim Hortons commercial. Uh, and so, Tim Hortons, the best coffee in town. Okay, I uh, just want to get that out of the way. I want you to, <laughs> we've been in a series called Life of Worship, and I want to, uh, I want to take you on a quick journey and just ask you a question here this morning. I, I'd like you to remember right now the last 
long trip that you took uh, and the destination that you went to. And I'd like to, you to think about the process of getting there and how you would describe the journey. Um, on our way to Israel, we watched a lot of movies. We took Benadryl to sleep. Uh, worked, eh, kind of. We wore compression socks to keep the blood flow going. We tried not to bump arms with strangers sitting next to us. Uh, we prayed a prayer of thanksgiving when the longest flight, the one to Istanbul, finally landed on the ground. But for the most part, no hashtag bush luck happened. That's what we call most of the experiences. Thank you, thank you, that we, uh, we usually go through when we're, uh, we're out on the road. For example, uh, ample, example our, our fuel pump did not go out in Indiana on our way home, forcing us to have Thanksgiving in a motel with TV dinners that we got from Walgreens next door. Uh, we also were, didn't end up in a hotel in Tennessee getting up at 4 a.m. and having to leave because there was a waterfall coming through the ceiling because the people above us had left their bathtub running all night. Um, we did not have hashtag bush luck on that, that trip. But if you do travel at all, you have probably found yourself on the side of the road for a couple of hours. Uh, you have probably drawn an imaginary line with your sibling in the back seat and said, do not cross this line. You have probably had a night or two in a hotel with a heater that either didn't work or worked way too well. You ever had that when you wake up at 3 a.m. and you're in a sauna? Uh, a, a, a common statement that you will hear about Traveling, and they will say this, the joy is in the journey. Have you ever heard that one? The joy is in the journey. And I am convinced of this, and this is point number one today for the message. I am convinced that people that say the joy is in the journey do not own minivans. That is my summation uh, of that statement. But that statement, actually, the joy is in the journey, is not so much about staying civil with your family on a trip, an eight-hour trip to Gatlinburg, Right? You'll have moments of joy when you arrive, but until then, buckle up, buddy, and let's get there. Try not to kill each other. Uh, obviously, a big part of the journey is the destination, and we, it, we would save ourselves a ton of money in theme park tickets and uh, sunscreen and all these different costs if the joy was just in the journey, right? We would just get an allotted amount of time off, and we would travel west in the car for half of that time and we would turn around and come back and go we did it the joy was in the journey which just sounds fantastic uh, so the destination is definitely a part of the journey but the destination certainly isn't the only reason that we go there's a reason that we don't take vacations by ourselves very often. It's because the people in the car or on the plane with us are the biggest part of the reasons for the trip. And those relationships are formed on the journey of life as well. In the house, during the weekly schedule, during late night talks through tears, during common colds and shared fast food meals standing next to the kitchen counters. The joy really is in the journey because without the journey, there's no depth of relationship. And without relationship, the destination is just about you. And that's a pretty hollow reason to go. This is how a lot of people view heaven, by the way. It's the place I'm going for me. And I just want to tell you today, that's a pretty hollow view 
of heaven. Instead, it's a place where we are going to be with Jesus, and the more we walk in relationship with him on this journey, the sweeter it's going to be when we get to that ultimate destination with him forever. And that brings us to the last focus point that I want to make in this Life of Worship series that we're in. We've been in this series all year where we're talking about the the six simple ideas and things that Jesus taught his disciples and his followers, and he taught them and modeled for him and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. One was that we should worship, and so we're calling this series Life of Worship. And the last big thing I want to drive home in this series is this, is that worship is a transformational journey with the one we love the most. Let's pray together and ask God to just bless this time that we share studying his word. God, I thank you so much for being with us and among us. I thank you for loving your people so much that you would be in this place and that you walked with us in every day and every moment of our lives leading up to it. But in this place, you've designed and and told us that you bring your presence among us in this special way. And I'm so thankful for it. And as we enjoy that, I pray that you would just minister to us through your word and through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the beginning of our series on worship, we talked about one of the key teachings of Jesus, and he pointed out that God always initiates worship. He always starts the conversation. And without God reaching out to us, we would have no way to reach back to him or reach to him in the first place, rather. And, and we talked about it a little bit further. We talked about how that works in covenant. Like God reaches out to man and then through an a individual on behalf of all of the people, God makes a covenant. He says, this is how we're going to interact. He makes the first step and then man reciprocates by acting in return according to covenant. And as we study, often not so well according to covenant. But God always sets the standards. And so in the covenant in which we now live and we operate, God has set the standard. And it's really dangerous when man says, we're going to determine the way in which we approach God. That's why it's so important that we're in his word and we know his covenant words that say, hey, this is how I've built this relationship for us to start and us to grow in. I'm giving you instructional understanding over and over again how to approach me in this new covenant bought with the blood of Jesus. He initiates and we respond. That's the power of the gospel. When someone realizes that God has reached out to them in love through his only son, we're convicted by the Holy Spirit and then we say like those in Acts chapter 2, what do we do? What should we do? How do we respond to you? You've made this offer. You've reached out to us. How do we respond? And the response, as we see there, embodied in the first day of the church, is we believe, we confess, we repent of our sins, we're immersed into Christ. And from that stepping off point, there's this back and forth, reciprocating conversation with God through our whole lives. Not, it's not, I'm in the club, all right, see you in heaven. It's the beginning of a lifelong journey of, well, it's worship. And to to help make this clear, I I just want to look at a a biblical example of this pattern. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to to go to Isaiah, back in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about Isaiah the prophet. And a lot of times when people talk about Isaiah, you'll often hear a reference to this very famous moment in his life. So Isaiah chapter 6 
is where we're going to be. And I'll give you a second to get there. And if you're, you're not there, you have a phone, you can uh, just put Isaiah 6 in Google. You're going to get there. And we generally read out of the English Standard Version if you're looking for what version I'm reading from. But you can follow along whatever version that you have. We're in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And it says this. In the year of King Isaiah... The, king, uh, the, the year that he died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now you've got to use the imagination of your mind's eye here to see what Isaiah is describing here. So as we read, just draw a picture in your mind, okay? I saw him on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills all of the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is just blown away by what he's experiencing. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for verse 8 and I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and whom will go for us and then I said here am I send me what we see here is a glimpse and I think kind of like John in Revelation just trying his best to describe things that are beyond the scope of human eyes to understand but we get a pretty good picture at least one that we can begin to draw a simile of what it must have been like and what we see is a actual conversation it's a back and forth uh, conversation between Isaiah and God himself I'd like to, to just point out some, some characteristics of that and then make some application for us. So the first thing is that at the recognition of God opening his eyes to the sight of himself for Isaiah, Isaiah first is hit by humility. He's hit by humility. Now this is one of those uh, messages where the preacher thinks he's pretty cool because he comes up with alliterations for things, all right? He's hit by humility. Uh, but that word is very intentional because it's not, he's not just, he doesn't take a posture of humility. He is impacted by it. It's almost involuntary the way that Isaiah responds to this. It's hardly a conscious decision. See, as God makes himself evident to Isaiah, the prophet just cries out in shame and understanding that I am this mere mortal and I should not even look upon the face of this holy God and he's struck with this holy fear. He's just absolutely in awe. When was the last time that we were simply in awe of our God? 
to say, God, you are so mighty, you're so righteous, you are so pure and beyond my ability to approach and understand, but you have called me to be in relationship with you. How can this be, God? I'm just in awe of you. I would say that often our approach to God is not characterized by such reverence. I'm speaking for myself too. There's some real self-examination going on here. In fact, the struggle that I hear with many folks when they talk about why they, they don't approach God in prayer specifically is, I don't know what to say. But that statement isn't usually associated with, I'm so in awe of God, I have no idea what I would say or how I would, how I would even begin. The statement is more born out of not wanting to feel embarrassed in public or not wanting to be bored in private. It's about the way we, we might be carefully choosing words to honor this holy and righteous God. No, 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 it's... I, uh, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable, I'm, I might sound weird saying something, I might not say the right things, and then when you're by yourself, hi. I want to say this with love and, and sincerity for myself and for all of us. Frankly, who cares how we feel in his presence about ourselves? Who cares if we feel embarrassed or we feel ineloquent? It's not about you. It's not about me. You and I have been given the privilege of being in the presence of God. Imagine being given, for right now, just imagine somebody hands you at the back door today an envelope. It's an it's a all-expense-free paid trip to the Grand Canyon or to the Great Pyramids of Egypt, or to Acadia National Park in Maine, or to the Alps over in Switzerland, or to the beaches of the Bahamas, and that you get that in your hand, and you go, ah, and you hand it back, and you say, I'm not going to take this because I wouldn't know how to react once I got there. It might be embarrassing. It's ridiculous! <laughs> We'd be like, thank you, I'll take another! Who cares what I look like when I get there? I'll be in the Bahamas, baby. No, it's a free opportunity. It's, a, it's an opportunity to go to this place and go, whoa, holy cow. You get to go there. Listen, you get to go to the presence of Almighty God. What a shocking opportunity. God, open our eyes again to the glory that we have the opportunity to, 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 to be in your presence. Let us never again be bored at that thought or be so self-centered that we'd be like, eh, I might look strange. God, your image eclipses my image in its glory, so I'm here to worship you. You think I'm undignified now. You remember, you remember that? You remember that story? Or David? Uh, let, me, let me share a little bit with you about that in case you're not aware of it. Let's throw up the old Ohio-Israel map. I love this thing. Over in Israel, uh, one of the things that hit me, first of all, was how small it is. And so um, I found this cool little website that overlays uh, maps of different parts of the country. And this is the actual size of Israel overlaid on Ohio if Jerusalem and Columbus were in the same place. Okay? And so uh, we figured out that, that Marion's about where uh, Nazareth is, Jesus' hometown, and 
we figured out that, uh, uh, let's see, uh, anyways, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Delaware is, is in Samaria, and, and we should not, never go there. That's what we figured out. Uh, <laughs> but if you look over, if you see, see the red part of the map, that little corner that juts out on the left side, that, that little section there that's highlighted, that's the Gaza Strip. Well, you'll hear a lot of uh, unrest that's going on. And right at the top of that, there's a town called Hebron. And it would lay right about where uh, Xenia is in Ohio, if you're familiar with that area. And that was the seat of where David's throne was when he became king. Not in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was still under the control of the Jebusites. So in 2 Samuel 5, we see this story of David marching, and the historians say he marched around the bottom of Columbus, Jerusalem there, uh, went through maybe Grove City, which is where, about where Bethlehem was, and came up around the east side of the center of the city, and that, that mountain or that hill facing the city is the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem and I, I brought a little video this morning and I didn't shoot the video thinking I would use it this way so it's terrible but at least you can see a little bit of picture all right so let, let's see that and I'll try to explain what's going on so I'm standing right here on uh, a little uh, top of a, a building and we're looking over from where the city of David is the citadel of David would have been and you'll look down into that valley see the valley right there and then those buildings on the other side are on the Mount of Olives. Now this is where the historians believe that the conversation that I'm about to read you took place. And as you can see, if you talked in a really loud voice from that city center over onto that hillside, you could hear somebody talking back and forth. And so this is likely where that conversation took place. David and his men outside the city on the hill... In 2 Samuel 5, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there, and the Jebusites said to David from the citadel, Well, you ain't going to get in here. Even the blind and the lame could ward you off. Them's fighting words. David just didn't take well to that stuff. And so as we were there, we learned a little bit about the history of how David likely made his way in through the water system and snuck into the city, and they take the whole city. And Jerusalem becomes, it's not even called Jerusalem then, they just call it the city of David. And it's just a little section of what Jerusalem is now, but he takes that, that city, and Jerusalem, as it becomes named later, becomes the seat of Israel and all of God's amazing work that he does there. And so this is a big deal. Super big celebrations start going on. And so we find out in 2 Samuel 6, the next chapter, that wearing a linen ephod toga 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 but not as much coverage as a toga okay wearing a linen ephod david was dancing before the lord with all of his might now i don't know if you've ever been to a uh, dance in high school junior high dance but my dance of choice was this that's super cool back then Still am. Still got it. No. Anyways. <laughs> this I would not describe as dancing with all your might. David is dancing with might. I mean, he's just going. Punch dancing in the wilderness. Uh, anybody? No, okay. That's all right. 
uh, he's just going, and it probably, hopefully, looked a little more interesting than that, but, but it is intense, whatever it is. Dancing with all his might, and while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the, the Lord with shouts and a sound of trumpets, they're bringing the ark of the covenant into town after this big victory, David's dancing like crazy, and it says... When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, you remember Saul, the guy that tries to kill him, the guy that he has replaced, he marries his daughter. She comes out to meet him. And she says, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Welcome home, honey. Way to go. Saw you dancing outside. What a distinguishing event that was. Anybody ever come home to something like that? David returns in kind and says, I'm sorry, honey, I'm sorry to have offended. No. He says, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. He chose violence in that fight. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, anyone or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this woman. And listen to what he says at the end. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. In whose eyes? In his wife's eyes? In the community's eyes? No, no, no. David says, I, in my worship of God, because of what he has done, I will not regard my own dignity as something to be kept from him. You see, when, when we engage in God's presence and his glory, we turn the attention from me to him. Completely. Sweetheart, it ain't about your daddy, it ain't about you, and it ain't about me. It's about God who gave us this city, and he gets the glory, and I don't. So when we enter the presence of God, the first thing on our mind should not be, I hope I don't look strange worshiping him. When you come into the presence of Almighty God, you can't help but respond in humility and in a posture of worship. It's not about me at all. It is all about you, God. So sing. Sing with loud voices. Sing with imperfect notes. Loud. Any bad singers in the room? I want to hear you guys today, okay? I mean, if we... (laughs) Holy, holy, holy. I mean, I want to hear it, okay? Because <laughs> raise your hands without worry of theological or cultural implications. Fall on your knees if you need to. These are not requirements, but they're options. Because when we're in the presence of an almighty good God who has done so much for us, my self identity goes out. Who cares? It's all about Him. Give glory to God in the way He deserves to receive glory with all our might because humility removes my ego and my dignity from worship. It says, when he reveals himself in power, 
I can fall down before him. And when he reveals himself in joy, I can physically respond in joy. And when he reveals himself in my pain, I can be on my knees and I can cry before him. And here's the thing, bad singers. If you will be bold and lift your voices to heaven, you're, you're like, oh, I just don't want anybody to hear me. Here's the thing about that. When I hear somebody singing around me, whether they are on key or off key, if they're doing it boldly, it is such an encouragement for me. There might be a, a little part of me initially that goes, ooh. <laughs> but there's, <laughs> but you know, the bigger part of me just goes, oh, praise God. Listen to the courage and listen to the heart in that voice. If they can have that courage and worship before God, so can I. Sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Next, at the recognition of God's power and his presence, Isaiah is compelled to confession. Ooh, another alliteration. But this is, this is exactly what happens. Having been welcomed into this holy vision of God's glory and his presence, Isaiah says, I'm wrecked. Woe to me. I'm ruined. I, I, I'm unclean. I have a man, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I don't deserve to be here. There's a lot of reasons that people will talk to me about not about struggling in relationship with God, not being in you know close proximity to Him in prayer and worship. But one that often comes up is this idea of unworthiness. If you only knew. Isaiah understands your struggle. <laughs> He's brought close before the glory and the perfection and the majesty of God, and he instantly feels like he's standing as an ant next to a human shoe, and the shoe's going up. Like, this thing could crush me at any moment. I think I've shared uh, with church family here before that my wife and I had the very strange experience in the first year of our marriage uh, to be able to be in New York City just a couple of weeks before 9-11 happened. And we came up out of the subway into the, that mall area that you've probably heard about in some of the reports of, of what happened. And we came up inside the World Trade Center and, uh, and we decided not to take the tour elevator to the top because it's $27 a ticket. Um, but we went outside onto the concourse there next to the North Tower and for fun I decided to walk up and just paste myself against that building and look up because there's no out jutting foundation it's just flat and, and I looked up have you ever done this where you, you look up at something that's just enormous 110 stories and I stepped back and went physically lost my balance for a minute because I was just so taken by the size and the scope of this thing in front of me. Isaiah is not looking at a tall building. He's gazing at the throne of God that spoke the universe into existence and it's not just his body that gets dizzy. His soul staggers in that moment. 
at the brilliance and the grandeur and the essence that all is around him. And he realized how insignificant and how broken what he has to offer is. And he's like, oh, this is terrible. And here's what happens. You get a deeper glimpse of who God is, his holiness and your study and your prayer and your pursuit of him. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to see the distance that had to be traversed in order to get to you through Christ you're going to see how glorious he is and how small you are and you will conclude as Isaiah did I am utterly out of my league and you are right and it's all all is laid bare see God sees Isaiah's very soul The sad beauty of moments like this for Isaiah and for us is that we realize that confession of our sins before God is necessary for us, but not for him. He knows all, sees all, and we're laid bare before him. And as Daniel the prophet read the words on the wall to Belshazzar the Babylonian king and later was paraphrased by Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein of Gelderland in A Knight's Tale, you have been weighed, you have been measured, And you have been found wanting. And so, worship is a place of resignation to full confession. I am laid bare before God. And if the story ended right there, like if that was the whole thing, this would be a really sad story. But because of what happens next, there is great hope for Isaiah and there is foreshadowed great hope for us because the angel takes a burning coal from the altar in that very holy place. You realize that's a holy coal from the altar and he touches it to the unclean lips of the man. And I like when the text it says he took tongs and my brain immediately goes to these metal tongs we have in our kitchen drawer that I click twice before we grill. Woohoo! And I uh, get all excited about and I, I don't know if what tongues in the throne room of heaven look like, but that's what I'm going with. And, uh, and he picks it up. Now, the angel doesn't touch it. But he touches Isaiah's mouth with it. What do we picture here? And the mo- one of the most sensitive parts of the body. This is a painful experience, but it's a purifying experience. And literally, Isaiah's body and his soul then burns with a burden to bless. Isaiah is is purified, a man of unclean lips and among a people of unclean lips. What does God do? He, not Isaiah, purifies the unclean. And once again, God initiates this part of the conversation. After coming to grips with God's glory and and, and Isaiah's unworthiness, God then reciprocates Isaiah's interaction with him by doing what Isaiah cannot do and only God can by making Isaiah worthy to be in this place. Do you get that? All of a sudden, all this amazing, glorious, holy stuff and this sinful man and the angel touches his mouth, purifies him and now he belongs there with everything else that is holy and beautiful. Now if that were you, And you had this Isaiah experience and all of a sudden the terror and the weight and the pain of how I am so broken and the terrible choices that I have made. I don't belong with you. And God goes, I got this. Ow. 
you're now worthy. You now belong here. How would you respond? I'd suggest you might respond the way Isaiah did. Because what happens is a voice goes out from the throne and says, who will be my mouthpiece to tell of my glory and what I do with broken, unclean lips? And Isaiah screams in response, I am here! The one who didn't deserve to be, but you made me clean. Please send me to tell this awesome message. And so true encounters of worship launch us into action. You see the journey? The conversation taking place in worship? Here's the takeaway that I have from understanding this conversation, this journey, is that Often we view worship as these, this unconnected series of, of events. We come to a time of corporate worship, and then we have a time of Sabbath during the week, and then we have a little time of prayer here with a friend, and, and we see, see these things as this series of unrelated episodes with God and humans. But God encounters with worshipers in the Bible were much more when we examine them. As Jesus teaches us to worship and he models it for us, he shows us an ongoing, growing, relational conversation. And next week we're going to finish up the series talking about one of those conversations on our road to a town called Emmaus with two men as Jesus builds into them and they respond and worship. And the reason I'm taking two weeks on this to bring this home and this aspect of worship is that it may be the most important thing that we study in regard to this. That worship is a transformational journey with the one we love the most. It is a transformational journey with the one we love the most. See, one of the things that Satan and his minions do, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that we are at war against, one of their most effective strategies is to cause you to feel distant from the heart of God. And this is how he earns his name, the accuser of the brothers and sisters. Once we're in Christ by faith at baptism, we have a new identity. We're a child of God, a new creation, a royal priest, a citizen of a holy nation, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I love that. That's one of my favorite names. And our proximity to God is instantly and forever changed as now we walk near him because he is literally within us. And there is nothing that the enemy can do to draw us and pull us away from him, to twist our heart and, and, and to, 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 to somehow relieve God's power and his strength to hold us in that intimate relationship. But what he will do is whisper lies to cause you to feel distant. We often identify the attacks of the devil with words that get said to us. We'll, we'll name persecution as this thing, these mean things that people say to us or mean things we even say to ourselves in private. But the, the, the devil and, and, and our adversary is much craftier than just to use those frontal assaults. What if he could convince you that a time of worship with God wasn't all that significant. Yeah, go if you can, if you don't have something else scheduled. 
What if you could whisper in your ear while you sing and praise that this part of the service isn't really the important part? What if you had music at the beginning of a service and you said, I'll just show up for the sermon and communion? What if he said, yeah, you could probably use the bathroom during this section. It's just the music. It's just the worship. What if he could suggest in the spiritual realm to your heart that you, focusing your energies, remember we're talking about being a fan, the air of your life, focusing the fan of your life towards God, are just little insignificant, unconnected moments and choices that you do during a sermon series, but leave it behind after because it's just a nice thing to do. It's a nice thought. Certainly not an ongoing dialogue with you and your eternal loving Father that will continually grow from now into eternity. Why, if he could convince you that worship isn't the dialogue of a relationship with the one who loves you the most, a transformational journey with the one you love the most, then just keep doing it here and there. He might be able, maybe, might be able to keep you from ever growing in your faith at all. He might not be able to win you away from God, but he might just keep you from ever growing into the beauty and maturity of what God has in store for you in life. And he might keep you from being able to have any impact on this world. If he can't win you, he can at least win the people you would win if you were actually following Christ. Don't believe his whispered lies. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are on a journey with God who is growing with you, wrestling through trials with you, celebrating growth with you, supplying your needs, guiding your steps. If you'll only seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he will add to you all these things that you need. If we'll orient the air of our lives towards him in an eternal, joyful journey, a conversation with the one we love, he will answer. He will be a faithful friend. Proverbs says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We know who that is, don't we? His name is Jesus. And he told us, as one of the last things he said before he left earth, I will be with you always. I will be with you what? What's the word? Always. I will be with you. What's the word? Always. Always. Uh, some most of the time <laughs> every moment and so as we sing today here's the challenge don't sing to God as if it's an isolated event close your eyes with me and, or if you would if you, and I'd like to just draw a picture for you and I hope that it will help us as we enter this time of response and worship to God let's Use our imagination. Say so you walk home, walk into your home one evening. You go in the front door. You put your things on the counter in the kitchen or you throw it on the floor like they do in the bush house, wherever you put it. Drop your stuff and you head to the living room and you sit down, let your shoulders drop. And in the chair across from you or beside you, however it sits in your living space, there is Jesus, friendly smile, full of understanding, as he says, hey, how was your day? And you proceed to tell them about your work struggles, your highs, and you laugh together. Tell them your lows, and he nods and he says, I'm sorry. 
I know that was tough. And you tell him where you messed up and you fell short, and he says, don't worry, you're forgiven. And these moments are so comforting to you and centering to you. And why wouldn't it be? Because after all, Jesus is there. And and so you head to work the next morning. So you, you get up out of your bed and whatever your routine is, get ready to head out the door. And there he is. He's seeing you out the door in the morning. He's encouraging you to keep on in hope and joy because he's won every battle that you're about to face today. You arrive at work and there beside your workstation sits Jesus. Didn't expect to see him there. That kind of startles you. And there he sits with you. He watches you work. He's on the work site observing what you do and he tells you how proud he is of your efforts And he encourages you to stay at it, to continue that honest labor, and don't be discouraged as you do. And he tells you not to worry about the deadlines and what the boss says about you. After all, he's there. Jesus is there. And this pattern goes on day after day in every environment, in your home, your workplace, restaurants, all week. And these conversations continue and you become more and more at peace and at ease at home and on the job and at dinner and everywhere because after all, he's there. One more picture. You walk into this building on Sunday morning and you arrive and you're looking for him. Because if he's in the house and he's at the job and he's at the restaurant, well, he's certainly going to be with his bride, the church. And so you come into the room, you're looking around, you search for him, and as the service begins, sure enough, there he is before you, radiant and glorious, so worthy of honor, and you are thrilled to give it to him in study, in singing, in communion, in prayer, because what a friend we have in Jesus. See, family, friends, the the devil robs us and we rob ourselves when we are not attentive to God's consistent presence in our journey. Isaiah teaches us that we cannot experience a visitation of God and not respond. And on Sunday, could I suggest this? Sunday, many are not ready to respond to him in worship because they've never invited him to visit them during the week. This is what builds the anticipation and the excitement in our voices that Corey was describing. I'm just looking forward to being with the family of God to sing. Why? Because I've been with Jesus during the week. So here's the challenge. Would you invite him into every part of your life? Would you make your worship then a response to the way he engages with you in prayer and study? Listen for him. Look for him. He will speak. He will provide. And when he speaks, we must worship. Pray with me, if you would. Father God, you told us, you told us through your son as he sat there with 
those apostles that were so scared, he said, don't worry. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. And I don't give as the world gives. And in that conversation, he said, I will send a helper. It's me. It's my spirit that lives inside you. And then at the end, he said, I will be with you always, Father. We know you make good on your promises. And so help us to be attentive to the fact that you're with us. And let our worship just simply today and every day be a response to how you have begun the conversation. Thank you for beginning the conversation. Thank you for the cross of Christ and for how it invites us to have our unclean lips cleansed that we might sing your praises and live in service to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.